You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for all your good gifts to us. Thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for this day. Thank you for this time together to learn from you and your word. Please concentrate our hearts and our minds that we might hear what you have to say to us this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in light of the World Cup, uh, I shouldn't use this as an excuse, but I haven't thought about today's subject as much as I would have liked to. And I feel like it might come across as a little bit of a rant. Um, and I don't want that to be the case. So if you have pushback towards me, I'm, always, I'm very open to have that. Um, I'm not the final arbiter of anything that I say. The Lord God in his word is the final arbiter. Uh, and so if there's something that offends you or something you disagree with, um, please either say publicly or come and talk to me afterwards. Uh, but before I say too much and get myself in too much trouble, basically the main point of what I want to say today in today's class uh, is the, similar to what I've been saying uh, over the past few weeks, is that we need to reorientate our hearts and our minds away from ourselves. Welcome. We need, we, we need to turn our gaze away from ourselves and turn it towards Christ, looking to His gospel. So we need to make sure that we're focusing not on ourselves and this world, but on the true and living God. Understanding that our salvation is not about us, it's not about what we do, but it's about what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. And the gospel must be at the centre of all that we do in, the, in our life and in our church and worship. For if we move the gospel away from the centre, if we take our focus away from Christ, everything we do just becomes some sort of kind of pagan religion where we try to do certain things to appease the gods or uh, we try and comfort our guilty consciences. We constantly need to be reorientating ourselves back to God, reorientating our beliefs and practices around the gospel, understanding that salvation is wholly a work of God that comes to us by grace through faith by the power of the Holy Spirit. So that's basically what I want to say. Stop thinking about yourselves. Look to Christ in the gospel. And that should shape how we worship. That should shape the church. Uh, it should dictate what we do. You must have right understanding of who God is before you can do what he wants you to do, before you can have right practice. But the problem is that so often our practice shapes our belief. So what, I, what I've been talking about and kind of harping on again and again, um, repeating again and again, is that what you believe should determine what you do. But so often what we do shapes what we believe. And that is very common in church. So for example, if you celebrate Christmas or Thanksgiving every year growing up, then you might come to the belief that that is a very important part of life. Your family may have started these practices out of a certain belief, but the ritual of doing them, after a few years of doing them, they become 
more important than the belief itself. So things like tradition and culture, economics, age, gender, personality, convenience, all these are factors that influence what we do and what, therefore what we believe. These are usually good things through which we can uniquely express who we are and what God has done for us. We are all given, given, given different gifts of the Spirit and have been designed differently to express ourselves differently. And these differences are good things and we should allow them to be expressed. But these good things and these differences can often distract us from the most important thing. We need to make sure that everything we do is directed by our belief in Jesus, our commitment to the gospel, so that these good things don't take the place of the most important thing. So there's many good things we could be doing at church, isn't there? There's lots of serving you can be doing. You could be an acolyte. You could be uh, part of the choir, a musician, an usher, a small group leader, a Lenten lunch server, a breakfast server, a warden or on the vestry. But these good things, these good things, these good things that we serve in, they should not replace or distract us from the gospel, from believing and proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. These good things must support and flow out of the main thing, not the other way around. Often we start our ministries or our programs in order to better care for our people, but we lose sight of that goal and we end up trying to support the ministry or the program instead of the people. So we think, how can we get the people to this ministry? How can we bring the people in? rather than what ministry can we do to care for the people that we have here. That's an often, often a, a problem for churches. Instead of supporting the ministry, we should be caring for the people. Our goal is not to have great ministries that look impressive, the most attractive service with the best choir and the most elaborate liturgy that we can have with perfectly trained acolytes that look beautiful. Our goal is not to be the most accessible church to a particular type of person, to the millennial or the college student or the family or the retirees. Rather, our goal is to make disciples of all nations, to point all people to Jesus. For salvation is found in no one else. There is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Our goal is that all people... I'll pause for you, Bethany, just to make it more awkward. <laughs> Our goal is that all people would grow in their love and knowledge of God and maybe they're able to grasp how wide and long and deep is the love of Christ. With that being said, everything that we do in church should point towards and focus on what has been done for us in Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our services should be gospel-shaped with songs, prayers, sermons, practices that point us to Christ and what he has done. This doesn't mean that we do away with all forms of tradition. We don't kind of just scrap everything we've been doing for the sake of having this kind of pure spiritual kind of church. But we need to regard, sorry, we don't need to regard anything as anything physical or traditional as evil but we need to make sure that everything is shaped by the gospel. Everything that we do, everything we say, everything that is done for us should be shaped by the gospel, 
through the administration of the sacraments and through the preaching of the word. We need to make sure our practices are shaped by this gospel so that through them God might speak to us through his word. He might speak to us of the grace he's poured out to us in his son that we might be directed towards him. Not seeing ourselves and our good deeds and our good practices, but seeing Christ. And when things fail to do this, we should reform them or get rid of them. Jesus warns us against getting what is good, the good things that we could do, mixed up with what is right and true in Matthew seven twenty-one to 23. This is a little bit, I'm going on a little bit of a confusing tangent here in this passage, so I'll try and explain it as best I can, but come back at me. In Matthew seven twenty one to 23, he says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. In this passage, we see people doing good things, good spiritual things, prophesying and uh, what else are they doing? Driving out demons, performing many miracles. Can you imagine if you could do those things, how great that would be? But Jesus doesn't care about those things. He cares about obedience to him, obedience to Christ. So if your commitment to being, this is a little bit of a side step, if your commitment to being an Episcopalian is higher than your commitment to Christ, then there's a problem. If you come thinking, I was an acolyte, I was, I was on the vestry, I, I processed in with the choir. If you come thinking that that is going to get you into heaven, then there's a problem. But this isn't exclusive to our tradition. It's not exclusive to Episcopalianism. Because if you think that your expression of church is more important than Christ, then you have a problem. If you're a Baptist or a Presbyterian or a United Methodist or whatever other crazy denomination you are, if that is higher than your commitment to Christ, there's a problem. Our expression of church should be shaped by Christ and his gospel rather than the other way around. So this is particularly uh, problemsome for me. Not a problemsome, but felt for me. Uh, I'm dating a lovely girl called Rachel and I asked her if I could talk about this. But very early on in our dating relationship, we were, we'd been dating for two or three months. I went back to Australia and I was going back to Australia to ask my bishop. I, uh, sorry, I need to give some context of what I'm talking about here. So I'm from Australia. I'm ordained in the Sydney Anglican Diocese, the Anglican Diocese of Australia, and I work here part-time and I submit to the Bishop of Australia, or the Bishop of Sydney, and the Bishop of Alabama. So I have two knees on the ground. Um, so these are two people that I willingly submit to and, and um, yeah, look to them for guidance. Uh, and I was dating this girl. I'm going back to Australia. I'm going to my bishop to ask him if it might be possible that I stay in Alabama for longer than I first thought. And there was this kind of tension in me because uh, we were dating and it was going quite well. We, sorry, we still are dating. I'm not using it. I'm thinking about the past event but not the past relationship. Um, it's going quite well and I'm thinking about the future with her. I'm thinking, look, I'm going to go talk to this guy who you have no idea about 
but he could literally determine my future. If he says, no, I want you to come back to Australia, then that's going to cause all sorts of different problems for us. But I told her that my commitment was first to Christ, second to my bishop, and then third to her because we were only dating. But if we were to get more serious and she was to become my wife, then my commitment would be to Christ, her, and then the bishop. I say that not because I want you to think that I'm a great guy and very romantic and all this kind of stuff. <laughs> Gee, that Michael Weeks, he's just got the words. He knows what to say to the lady. I'm not saying that because I want you to think of me in some sort of way, but I want to I model an example, the commitment that we have to Christ first, to our husbands and wives second, to our church third. The church should be the expression of our worship to God, not the other way around. Now, yeah, I'm not telling you about my subversive commitment to my denomination because I want you to think of me in a certain way, but I willingly submit to my bishops. It's about the priorities that I have and the priorities that I want you guys to have. Christ and his gospel are the priority. Everything else is secondary. Paul speaks of this priority in the gospel in his letter to the Corinthians. He writes, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the Twelve. The pri- this priority of the Gospel also comes out in the purpose statement that John writes at the end of his biography of Jesus' life. So John, in his Gospel, he writes, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. There's many good things that John could have written, any number of miracles and things that Jesus did and Jesus said that he could have written, but he chose to write what he thought was most important for you to understand, that Jesus is the Christ and that By believing in his name, you might have life. He focused on what is important instead of what is just good. At the Advent, uh, this gospel priority that I've been talking about is expressed in our core tenets. The second of which is very important, I think is very important. It's about communication. It says, We will communicate in ways that effectively enhance and further the ministry and purpose of the Advent. Now, I'm not on the vestry, I'm not a warden, I wasn't, in, I wasn't part of the team that put this together, but for me this is one of the most important points of the tenets. You might not see it, but I'm going to try and explain why. Because this is not just about communicating information on any, like in our leaflets and communicating ideas that we have uh, to you about events coming up, but this is about communicating the gospel through our services, through our liturgy, through what we do, the language we use in our our practices. Everything that we do communicates something. And so it's important that we're making sure that what we're communicating is the right thing. What we do and what we don't say in our liturgy, how how long we spend on certain things, things like the sermon or singing or uh, prayers or the Lord's Supper, the architecture of the church... Everything communicates some sort of theology. I don't know if you've thought about the architecture of the Advent and what it communicates, why the lectern is on the right and the pulpit is on the left or other way around, left and right. Uh, Why the table is in the middle. Why 
there's an eagle on the lectern. It's not because God is an Auburn fan, as Coffee was trying to convince me just before. He's clearly roots for Alabama at the moment. So, but every everything in the church communicates something. Everything we do communicates something. Where the clergy sit, where we read the gospel from during our communion service, where the officiant stands, whether during communion he stands behind the table beside the table or in front of the table. That communicates something. Um, if you want to talk about that, if you want to nerd it up with me about theology and aesthetics and all that kind of stuff, or want to chat to Zach, then go and, go and do that and be great. It's very fascinating but quite nerdy. But all these things, all the choices we make are deliberate because they communicate some sort of message, some sort of theology. There's certain things that I'm actually forbidden from wearing and from doing because of what it communicates. I can't wear a... I always get this confused, so I want to make sure I say it right. I can't wear a chasuble or other uh, kind of sacrificial vestments. And I can't administer the bread and the wine together. I have to administer bread and wine separately because of what it communicates. The point is that I'm trying to make is that everything communicates something. I don't want you to think, though, that there's just one true expression of how we're supposed to communicate the gospel. There's not one true expression of the church or of what Anglicanism looks like. There isn't one true expression of how the gospel is to be preached or teached or uh, shown in our practices. It might look different depending on who you are, where you come from, what language you speak, what culture you have, what traditions you do. But we must be more committed to the gospel than our traditions, our practices. We must be willing to get rid of those things that communicate something, something other than that salvation can be found in Jesus Christ alone and his death and resurrection. The gospel priority is very important when it comes to the sacraments. I'm just going to dwell on those and I hope I don't offend too many people. But there's a lot of misunderstanding around the sacraments. The way that I define the gospel and the grace in my first uh, lesson is important for how we understand the sacraments. If the gospel is some sort of pill that we take uh, to give us a cure of our diseases, to make us uh, a nicer and more holy person, then it's through the sacraments that we will receive this pill. But the gospel isn't a pill. It's the news about the work that Christ has done for us, which brings salvation for those who believe. And this salvation comes to us through faith through faith in his work and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And the sacraments are a visible reminder of these events. The Lord's Supper emphasizing the death of Christ and baptism emphasizing the resurrection and the new life we have in him. This is important because we don't uh, ingest grace when we're eating and drinking the Lord's Supper. The gospel is not given to us uh, and imparted to us internally like medicine. Theologian Michael Horton says, The means through which the gospel comes to us is external. We do not discover the truth by looking within our individual souls, but through the public proclamation of the word and administration of baptism and the Lord's Supper. What he means by this is that the objective work of Christ comes to us through an external means, through hearing, through believing, through the gospel preached and the gospel tangibly displayed in the sacraments. It's through these things that we receive and hear the good news. The sacraments are signs which 
confirm and strengthen our faith and which ultimately point us back to Christ, back to the grace of God in the news of Jesus Christ. And they allow us to participate in our union with Christ visibly and tangibly. But we only internalize them by faith. We don't eat and drink the Lord physically, but only by faith. The words that we use in our liturgy are very important, especially the line, take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith and with thanksgiving. As Paul writes to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 11:23 to 26, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you, The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, for which which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Come, Lord Jesus, come. See, I'm shaped by my liturgy. It's something I say all the time. Well, that's the end of my rant, sort of. So let's, I want to take a minute to think of some ways that the gospel should shape our church and what the, what the gospel brings to this community. The gospel brings a community gathered in Christ, and this community has a few ca- characteristics. Firstly, it's gathered community in Christ by God. That is, the church is born out of the gospel through God's salvation of sinners by his Son, to gather us around his throne. So the the gospel is the gathered community by God around his throne through Christ. This is significant because it's important that the church is a product of the gospel and not the other way around. The gospel is not a product of the church. The church does not hold authority over the Bible, but the Bible holds authority over the church. For Christ is the head of the church. The church is not the head of Christ. In Colossians 1.18, Paul writes, And he is the head of the body of the church, the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. So we need to get our priorities right of God God above the church. Sorry. Secondly, this gathered community is a family. Through faith we are united to Christ. And by the Spirit, we are adopted into God's family and we become kind of co-heirs, co-siblings in Christ. This supernatural gathering of unnatural relationships is gathered together and we become siblings and family of Christ. We are seated around God's table eating the family, family meal, sharing in the family food. This is the foundation of our unity. Christ and his gospel is the bind that ties. Tie that binds. I should read my notes. Tie that binds. We're not united by our wants or our desires, our personalities, but by God through his gospel. And unity is an important important thing. Paul writes to the Ephesians, Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit, just as you are called to one hope when you are called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Unity is important, but it's not the most important thing. This unity that we have should flow out of our commitment to the gospel. 
if unity becomes more important than the gospel, then we've lost the very thing that we can be united around. For our unity is not if if our unity is not based on the saving work of Christ, then we no longer exist as a church. We've just become a social club. So unity is important, but it must be centered on Christ. Thirdly, this family is made up of people unlike ourselves. Because salvation is by grace through faith. Uh, it's not based on social or ethnic or economic or kind of any kind of worldly means. This means that the church is a diverse group of people with all kinds of gifts and abilities. All people are called into God's family. And one of the defining factors of family, which you and I may not like, is that it's made of people that you didn't choose. And you probably don't enjoy being with them, if you're anything like me. (laughs) But they're your family, and you love them, even if you don't like them. And so the church is a a family, a, a group of people who you're called not to like, not to get along with, but to love the way that Christ has loved you. If you only go to a church with a small group of people that you like every Sunday, then you're missing out on a chance to grow in love and to be blessed by people who are different from you. This diversity is also seen from the different different gifts each member has. Uh, After exhorting the Ephesians to unity, Paul goes on to talk about the diversity of gifts that we've been given. He writes, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Here we see the gifts are people that God has given, but in other places he talks about gifts as kind of abilities or uh, what else does he talk about? Where am I? Uh, Certain skills that we might have. But whatever they are, they all have a common purpose. Whether people or abilities or uh, skills, they all have a common purpose in the unity and building up of the church in Christ. We are all different, but we are all meant to build each other up in Christ. And through the gospel, we're freed to love those who are different from us. I talked about this a little bit last week, uh, week before. Uh, and I don't really want to go in depth here, but the gospel frees us to love those who aren't like us because God has loved us as we are. God has welcomed us into his church as we are and he provides a place where all people can find rest from their striving. I think this is something that the Advent could probably work on a little bit in terms of welcoming those who are different from us. If you look around, there's all sorts of white people in our church, very socially, economically well off. It'd be nice if we had a little bit more diversity. I don't know if you were in the 9 a.m. service just this morning, but um, who's that? Men- What's his name? Roderick, the African-American guy that walked out. At- that was the funniest thing that you'd ever see, Roderick walking out with the uh, procession. Yeah. I mean, it's funny, but it's also beautiful because he's a part of our community and we need to love him and care for him. Wouldn't it be great if we were a much more messy church with those kind of people that... We, that kind of make us feel uncomfortable, but that help us to grow in our love of Christ. Anyway, fourthly, every member of the church is involved in the ministry of the church. 
The church doesn't belong to the, the pastors, the clergy. It's Christ's church. He is the head and we are the body. Every part of the body is important and has a task of building the other members up. Paul writes in Romans, For by grace, for by the grace given me, I say, every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment, in accordance with the faith God has distributed to each of you. For just as each of you has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we, though many, form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. If it is to encourage, then give encouragement. If it is giving, then give generously. If it is to lead, do it diligently. If it is to show mercy, do it cheerfully. The ministry of the church is not the sole responsibility of Andrew or Matt or Zach or Craig or me. A healthy church, or Bethany, sorry. A healthy church is one where everybody is building up each other, encouraging and caring for one another. Well, final three reflections. I'm going to wrap it up in a minute. Firstly, the gospel means that there's no perfect person in church. There's no perfect person in the world, really, but in church. The gospel frees us from having to put on a persona for other people. It means we don't have to come to church looking our best, feeling our best with kind of that... Preachers often call it the um, parking lot smile. Kind of you're dragging your kids to church, you're dragging yourself out of bed, into your car, you're feeling crap, you're driving to church, you're oh, I don't want to be here. You get to the parking lot, you park, you open the door, big smile on the face. All right, I'm great. How you doing? Hey, the parking lot smile. The gospel means we can be honest with ourselves. We don't have to do that. You don't have to come to church having it all together. You can relax, be yourself. If if you have kids and you've brought them to church, that is amazing. I mean, I'm 30 years old, I'm single, I can barely make it myself. If you've got children, if you've brought them, you're doing a good job. Relax. The church is a place where you can find rest for your weary soul, where you can hear the good news that Christ died for you, not because you have it all together, not because you managed to get out of bed on time, but because of his great love and mercy. By grace you have been saved. This is not of yourselves. In fact, it's often in spite of who you are. There's no perfect person. There's no perfect church. You'll never find a perfect church. The grass is not greener at another church. The grass is brown everywhere because there's no perfect person. The church community is made up of broken people who can be honest about their sin. And so we don't need to hide our sin from each other. And that means that our church is going to be messy. It's going to be full of sinners. These people who are gathered together by God in Christ. So if you're looking for that church that is perfect, then you're going to be disappointed everywhere you go. Stop looking for the perfect church and start loving the church that you have. Start loving the people in your church and seeking to grow them in their love of Christ. No perfect person, no perfect church. The hardest one, well not the hardest one, but this is more about me. There's no perfect pastor. There's no perfect minister. There's no perfect preacher. You will never have a perfect pastor. 
Oftentimes we want to mediate our relationship through uh, the preacher or through the minister of the church. Uh, through their sermons or through their prayers or through their actions, we might feel more blessed and cared for, which is sort of in some ways kind of right. But when we pin our hopes on the pastor, thinking that he is any closer to God than we are, then we're in big trouble. You don't become holy by putting on robes or being ordained or wearing a collar. You don't become more holy when you're ordained. Pastors, ministers, priests, deacons, whatever you want to call them, are all sinners saved by grace. Broken vessels patched together by the blood and body of Christ. And we need to be reminded of the gospel just as much as you guys do. Our job is not to mediate Christ to you, but to point you to Christ, point you to the work of salvation in the death and resurrection of our Lord and Saviour. I cannot save you. Andrew cannot save you. Our only hope is to show you who Christ is, what he's done for you. In our failures, in our successes, I hope you see Christ. As soon as we stop pointing you to Christ, then I hope that you fire me. I hope that you fire whoever's in the clergy. Christ alone is our salvation, our refuge and help in times of trouble. I think I was going to say something to conclusion, but that was mostly about me. If I stop pointing you to Christ, then get rid of me. Send me back to Australia. Put me on a plane. I don't deserve to be here. Um, that's all i got to say. Is there any questions, any pushback about my ranting mostly? Yeah, coffee. I made three quick notes. Uh, first, regular attendance equals greater exposure to the gospel. That is to say, yeah. sometimes the form of attendance mm-hmm. leads to the gospel, as does the liturgy. Yeah. Sometimes an orderly service directs our minds and our hearts and our contemplation towards the gospel. Yeah. And, and it is a path to, and it's, a, it's an aid to getting there. The third, little, the third point that I made a note of is different styles and forms of worship are a manifestation of different cultural experiences. Yeah. Now, we've attended on one occasion and intend to go back a delightful African-American church, uh, the Zion Springs Missionary Baptist Church, which is out here in uh, Second Street, out mm-hmm. North Allendale. It's an entirely different form of worship. Yeah, I bet. And you know, there was there was little, if any, true order to it that you would experience. Even, I mean, even a, if I went to Mount Brook Baptist, their their service is more orderly and more ordered than was that. Yeah. But those different forms of worship meet the needs of the people that were there. They didn't modify to meet Margie and I's needs. They took us took us in as guests and preached to us and loved us just like you know we take in people here. That yeah. Are different and don't yeah. necessarily subscribe to our style of worship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hope that's what I've been communicating. It may not have come through so clearly, but there's this constant struggle, isn't there, of culture and gospel, of wanting. We just want to make sure that the gospel is the thing that is driving us and, and moving us forward. And so the way we express it might look different, but it's a matter of foundation and. And priority, I think. Yeah, but you're definitely right in, in all those things, and certainly with practice. Yes, Kim.
the real problem is lack of love of God. Uh, what do you mean by that? John Owen uh, wrote a thesis on uh, the expulsive power of a new affection. And uh, John Wesley, in the last sermon that he preached with my American preacher, described exactly what you came up with all the things that a good churchman do. Yeah. He said the only problem was he didn't love God and I was that man. Yeah. He didn't he didn't really have a relationship with God until the gospel opened his heart and he was able to love back. Yeah, that's right. So we, you know, we we try to put things out of our lives, but it's because we have a a lack of love for God and more of a selfish deal. And if we, when the Holy yeah. Spirit has to really transform our hearts in order to put these things away, we don't do it. Yeah, that's I mean that's one of the hardest things about teaching. I'm sure you sure you know this. I I want you guys to be perfect Christians. I want to teach you how to do that. But I know that nothing I say can allow that to happen. But it's only by the power of God working in you, by the transforming power of the Holy Spirit to change your heart. And so I need, I need to make sure I'm just pointing you to Christ and to His gospel. It's what I've been saying all along, but thank you for that reminder. Yeah. And what, I mean, what you were saying before about the expulsive power of a new affection is that is uh, helpful. Um, I'm going to dwell on it for a minute, minute. Is that we can't Basically, what I've been saying before, we, there's nothing in us that can kind of turn us to Christ. So when I say we need to reorientate ourselves towards the gospel, like even that we can't do. We need the power of the gospel to come and and enlighten our hearts and and turn us to Christ. Uh, and like we, we need a bigger affection for Christ. Opens our hearts to receive and understand the love of God. Uh, and, uh, that has a transforming power. Yeah, and in saying that, there are means through which God will. There are things which God will use to turn us to Him, and through the services, through the reading of the Word, through the preaching, through the sacraments, He uses those things that we might see Him. So that's why we need to make sure that they're communicating the gospel to us, communicating the Word of God. Yeah. Any more questions? Any more thoughts? Well, thank you very much. There's one more class next week that I'm taking. And then, yeah, that's it for me. So thank you very much. Go and be fruitful. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.